am your host, Anthea Pockroy, and this is the ninth episode of Unframed. This episode is part of the talk by component of Unframed, as opposed to the conversation with, which is an interview directly with me. You'll see the difference in the titles of the episodes. The talk by component features art dialogues, talks, and panel discussions that happen around South Africa outside of this podcast, but where we are lucky enough to add the content to this platform for many to hear. I was fortunate to attend this one in September 2018 between artists William Kentridge and Yinka Shanabara. Shanabara, a British-Nigerian artist based in the UK, came to South Africa in September for his opening of his exhibition at the Goodman Gallery. As part of the Centre for the Less Good Ideas, For Once program, Kentridge hosted Shanabara for a conversation between the two prolific artists. Thank you so much to the Centre, the Goodman Gallery and the FNB Art Fair for allowing the recording of this dynamic conversation to be aired on Unframed. Enjoy listening to William Kentridge and Yinka Shanabara in dialogue about their art practices and how they relate to one another. Good evening and welcome to the Centre for the Less Good Idea. This is in fact William's studio. The Centre is located just down the passage, but it's very much a part of our programme. So the Centre for the Less Good Idea is a space that focuses on secondary ideas, on process work, on ensemble and collaboration in the performative. And tonight's In Conversation between Yinka Shonabari and William Kentridge feels quite surreal as an art student to be seeing these two icons of contemporary thinking and art making in conversation and that we are privy to it is quite magical. And we thank these two for being here tonight. And um, we thank you, so enjoy. So I would say welcome, Yinka, to the studio, to the Center for the Less Good Idea, to Johannesburg. It's fantastic to have you here. I'm sure most of us here have seen your work either in reproduction or in different museums. And it's great that at Goodman Gallery at the moment there's an exhibition of your work to be seen, but also there will be work to be seen in museums in Cape Town. Now, the way, just chatting to Yinka before we get going, we identified about 12 different topics. So I'll just read the topics out so we know the route map and then we'll get going through some of them and we'll see how far we get. I don't have a stopwatch today, we're able to take them in. So the topics in no order are Dada, death, Africa talking back to Europe, against certainty, theatricality, collaboration, the ballo in mascara, the last supper and banking, the lyrical and the poetical, um, monuments, classical sculpture, and guest projects, which is Yinka's, not the center for the less good idea, but a project beyond his studio that he runs in London. But I thought, let's maybe start by looking at something. Now, let, let me start off by asking you about the Royal Ballet. Yes, well, I, um, I wanted to make a piece called uh, Odile Anodet. And, you know, it's, it's based on the deal and that. So I approached the Royal Opera House. I wanted to work with them. And I needed to work with uh, a black ballerina. And I assumed because with the Royal Opera House, because of course I know that there are, um, you know, black ballerinas. Um, but, you know, Royal Opera House did not have a black ballerina I could work with. So um, I worked with somebody so I made the piece, uh, somebody from the Royal Ballet, and then had to work with a freelance uh, black ballerina to realize the piece. And essentially, I mean, the, the piece is about mirroring, if you like. Uh, it's two dancers dancing uh, Swan Lake, uh, dancing opposite each other. It, the, it, the piece is about difference. Um, and similarity at the same time. So they synchronize their movements and there's a frame in between them. 
and they look, you know, they look one and the same, and yet they're different. Uh, the point being made there really is the fact that we're, you know, we're, we're more or less uh, the same, but there are degrees of complexity to, uh, about that relationship between opposites as well. And so this is the, the piece begins with uh, just the Royal Opera House, and then it slowly moves on to the uh, um, studios, the smaller studio in the Royal Opera House, where the piece was actually, was actually shot. So maybe, we, Jana, we can play the, into the piece and watch that. So I haven't used any sound in this piece. Uh, you're meant to just feel the bodies and the sound of the feet. And I find that sound actually quite musical. The presence of the body and the breathing. Now, there were two things in this that intrigued me in this piece. Well, no, there were many things that intrigued me, but the th one of the things when preparing and looking at different pieces of your work was finding so many points of linkage where we were interested in similar images and similar ways of making art, although very often the impulse from the project came from very different directions. So there's, after this I want to show just two fragments So, Jeanne, maybe to talk about the, the, the mirror, the mirror image. And I want to know about the pleasure of, of that fake mirror. And the, so this is a piece made in the studio here, but again with what it is to have an apparent mirror when in fact there's no mirror. My piece came out of the Marx Brothers, um, Night at the Opera, no, uh, Duck Soup, and yours came from very much wanting to work with those two different dancers. Mine was Supam being both of them, obviously. And the other point was the idea of the black ballerina, in which uh, I worked with Dada Masilo, who was a ballet trained dancer, although the dancing she does now is not classical ballet, she doesn't dance on point, but for this piece, which is about the, um, the Chinese revolutionary operas, I persuaded her to go back on point, which she managed for about two hours before her feet were kind of dying. So we can just watch a fragment of, of this again. Okay, that gives us a sense, enough of it. So that for me was the kind of coming from different ways, how one arises, arrives at projects. And I'm interested in a project, I don't know how easy it is to find it, Jana, but there's an image of the, the Last Supper that Yinka made. And maybe you can flash them and try to find that. Maybe you talk about that, because when I'd seen it, I thought, okay, this is a piece about Leonardo, but the origins of it are very different. Yes, so when the subprime thing happened, and there was uh, you know, the, the economic, the, the, the crash of the markets, and you know, a lot of people were talking about you know, greedy bankers, and, uh, and I was actually thinking about all this, so I made a piece called the last, the last Supper. And, but my Last Supper, I mean, there, there's a, um, 
On the one hand, it's the relationship between religion and mammon. It's also, uh, it, it, it's, it's also kind of a shocking piece because it's the Last Supper, but all kinds of things were happening around the dinner table. Uh, people are, you know, men having sex with men, women having Is sex that, with can women. Can you put it back on? Put the um, slide back on. But it's kind of subtle, and they are um, headless. But from the front, you don't actually see what's happening until you go around the piece, and then you see um, that kind of deliberate aspect, you know, the, the deliberate shock aspect, but also exposing uh, the whole notion of greed, but not necessarily moralizing, because a lot of the pieces I make, there's a degree of complicity in the work that I make. So I don't necessarily fully criticize greed in the sense that there is a degree of aspiration to my critique. So it's much more complex. But I, also, I want to yeah. know the, how you got from thinking about the subprime mortgage crisis to the last supper. <laughs> What, is the, what happens in the studio between reading about Lehman's and other banks yes. and arriving here? Well, I mean, arriving here, you know, reading all of that makes you think about the consequences of greed. But then that, the cons consequences of greed also, you know, you then read about people losing their homes and, and all that. And then you have a degree of... Um, anger about that, but, but then you know that that piece cannot, you know, you cannot make anger as an artwork. So then you have to find a more satirical or humorous approach. And then the, the absurdity of the excess then becomes the satire that the piece, that the, so you, you then arrive at making something which is not necessary. It's, it's about, I mean, we were talking about the idea of anger an artist, and can you actually, as an artist, can you express your anger in your work? And, you know, we both kind of agreed that anger is not something, as an artist, that you would necessarily uh, make, because you wouldn't necessarily make good art. Yeah. No, I don't, but I don't think that the work can be about anger, but that yeah. sometimes an anger or a shock can give the impulse to start the work. And I'm yes. sure that that's there in the... But I'm still trying to work out, how did you jump from that to say the Last Supper will be the, the idea? Can one, I mean, sometimes one can track back and find how an idea emerged, yeah, and sometimes yeah. it's completely opaque. I mean, you know, I don't think it's, a, it's as rational as, as yeah. that. I think, I don't actually think, in the end, it, it's not rational. You know, I think it's, But I'm interested in the irrational that finds it nonetheless. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess, you know, the, um, you, you start to think, how do you express excess? How can one express excess? And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a Peter Greenaway film called The Cook, The Thief, His yeah. Wife. And I thought that film was absolutely brilliant in actually capturing the grotesque, because it is essentially a grotesque, Mm. depiction of, of um, excess. And so I guess, you know, one does then relate, you know, there are certain things that I've seen, other people's work, mm. and then they evoke other things. So I guess that's kind of how I arrived there. Because I think, how would I express that? Has somebody else actually expressed a similar thing? And how, what would my own approach be? And then what's the most... No, but you understand it's shocking because... The Last Supper, the great paintings, the tradition of the Last yes, Supper, yes. is really not about gluttony. No, no. Even it though isn't. it's about a Passover feast, which is very often about or includes gluttony, if it's not about gluttony, there's a lot of eating. But yes. the paintings, the tradition of the image of the Last Supper is usually quite, uh, it's not of people stuffing No, their but then, so that but was then, an interesting switch. But to make a paradox, yes, yeah. exactly. So that, that's the, the, the point of it is, religion is sort of sacred and you don't go near that. So to, to sort of turn something on its head and make the, the pious unpious is also another aspect mm -hmm. of it. So it's thinking about something 
but then thinking, what would the opposite of that thing be? Mm. And then, you know, and then, so I guess that it, it's a question of not wanting to do that literal thing and constantly, you're constantly working against yourself. It's sort of counterintuitive in a way. You're sort of working against yourself. But I'm also interested in that, and it's clear in a lot of the work, which is, and it's a familiar thing for me also, that there's always this double conversation. On the one hand, you're talking about the banking and the nature of banking, particularly in that period when it became so yeah. clear. But you're also in conversation with images you've seen, with the history of art, with the tradition yes. of yes. art. Um, and that doubling up, so there, you know, there are works of yours, there's, maybe if we can find the swing, the Fragonard painting, which was turned into a sculpture of yours, and yes. I suddenly realized I'd done a drawing of that also a while ago. But, so it's a, it's a gorgeous, it's a sort of, it's the end of the Ancien Régime. It's France in the 1780s, just before the revolution. The woman on the swing, it's one of the glories of a kind of a, a voluptuous world possible as if history didn't exist around it. Yeah, and the, so, so the, and that was the the drawing from, but both set off by a conversation with the, with Fragonard, with that image. Yes, and also with uh, you know Fragonard himself. I mean, once all the, uh, you know, the aristocracy once they'd been beheaded. I mean, it's, that was practically the end of his career, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, um, but, but then it does say something about our time. Mm -hmm. It says something about a society that doesn't much care about the less fortunate. But, but you know, it, it's, I don't want to express it in that way. I want to express it in a way which is, it's sort of aesthetically beautiful, but there's a darkness in that beauty. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a sense, it's a terrible beauty. And that is what, what the, the work, you know, the, the, that whole thing of the dark underbelly of something mm -hmm. um, is something I'm very much interested in. Kind of gallows humor. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in the different pieces that you make that, yeah, yeah. that have that. Um, maybe we talk about Balo in Mascara. So, yeah. which is a, a series of different projects that, but maybe talk about the, the shape and the origin of that, because that's also... Yes. Well, so, I mean, I was, I, I was invited to do a residency in Stockholm. It was at the time of the Iraq war, and I Just discovered... Freeze it, Just freeze the image while we're talking. I discovered uh, Gustav III, who was a Swedish king, and he was fighting wars in... Russia, while his um, citizens were starving, he liked going to the ball, and he was a very uh, ambivalent character, you know, gender ambivalence. He, he liked dressing up, and, he, um, and he, so he was murdered at the ball. And so I wanted to, uh, and of course, this um, historical event uh, was made into an opera by uh, Verdi, Ballet uh, Mascara. And, and um, so I recreated the ball, and I changed the gender. So the um, king becomes a woman, uh, the assassin becomes a woman, and um, and I made this film in, in in Stockholm. I mean, it's interesting that it was about Gustav III, but the censors wouldn't let Verdi set it there, so he had to set it in Boston. <laughs> yes, yes. But I'm interested in also in the interest in opera as, the, as a kind of a background in which to work out and to play with these different, these different images. Well, I mean, I think that um, as an artist of African origin, I mean, the last thing that would be expected of me was to actually use opera. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's very European. It's of a certain, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, quote-unquote considered elitist. But actually, I, I don't happen to think so, but nevertheless. Um, and so, and I thought that it's a place where you can express, um, you know, darkness, uh, the poetic tragedy, pathos, um, you know. Um, I mean, it's, the opera for me is also one of the few, particularly in an English-speaking world, where irony is the, 
normal way of dealing with serious subject. Yes. Um, where you can deal, opera will deal with emotion head on. Yes. Where rage is rage and vengeance is vengeance and yeah. love yeah. is completely expressed thoroughly without an irony. And that's a fantastic relief. Yeah, no, absolutely. But the theatricality of that yeah. is something which I'm very much drawn to. And, I, and of course, you know, uh, I have a kind of uh, addiction, obsession, call it what you like, for costume. And so it's a place where I can actually express that kind of uh, relationship with history, historical costume, um, you know, fantasy, uh, masquerade, I mean, all the things uh, that... So it's a place where the lyrical and the poetic can actually exist unapologetically. I mean, to come back to the question of opera in, in Africa, we have fantastic music, singing schools and fantastic singers coming out of South Africa. So in terms of Cape Town still has an opera company, Johannesburg doesn't have an opera company, opera is very rarely performed here, even though fantastic singers are singing all over the world that come out of South Africa. And I just wanted to show a clip as a kind of, it's not the same as Barrow in Mascara, but this was working with South African, not singers, but performers, in preparation for an opera that was going to be made in Austria. So this is a dance in Albenberg's opera, Wotzing, and filming that we did for in a workshop, preparing the opera. It was all going to be performed in the end by worthy uh, Austrian choristers, rather than these performers. But it seemed such an astonishing waste after the work we'd done with these great performers that we then developed the whole piece, the head and the low, in a way to use that material and to use that impulse and that energy that we developed in the workshop, but which didn't really have a hope in the final, in the final opera. But it's a kind of bellow in mascara also here with gas masks rather than the, the other masks. Okay, that gives us enough of a sense of, of that. Let's talk about the dandy. Yes. The dandy, which is both the title of a work that you've done, but as you say, an interest in the dressing up, in the costume, in the masquerade. So this was a, a famous series of, one of the first pieces of yours that I think I saw was this series of beautiful photographs, which were based on on the Hogarth, Rake's Progress. the Rake's Progress, um, which tells the story of a ne'er-do-well, a young man who inherits a fortune and over the course of eight etchings made by Hogarth, he loses it all, he makes a bad marriage, he has to marry a rich widow in the end to make his money back, he loses money at gambling. And here, of course, it gets turned on its head by what stands out as the person who shouldn't be in the room, so to speak. Yes, but, but also this piece was conceived for, I made it uh, as a series of uh, posters on the London Underground. And uh, at the time, I mean, now, you know, people are so used to seeing, uh, you know, quite well-known black artists and, uh, you know, uh, no news now. But then in 98, when the piece was done, uh, visibility was very much uh, a struggle, and there was a lot of activism around this. You know, the black art movement in the UK, um, with the third text published by Rashid Rain, you know, all tra you know, exposing the lack of opportunity, the lack of visibility. And so I wanted to do a work that will actually put the black character at the center. I also didn't want to make a moralistic Rick's progress. You know, there's no bedlam, there's no punishment, you know, uh, the guy gets away with everything. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, and then it's about representation. You know, how is one actually represented? A lot of the, uh, throughout my art history education, the, if there was a black character in any kind of historical image, I mean, that person would be the valet, that person would be... You know, and I changed you know, all that around and, uh, and then proudly presented this to millions of people in London uh, as uh, posters on the underground. So in effect, actually, this was my first public art project. 
And I also did some kind of gender ambivalence. So the, the character pointing in the last image is actually a woman dressed as a man. So kind of playing with some of those um, uh, um, kind of uh, gender sort of stereotypes and things as well. I mean, it's interesting saying that, okay, so Hogarth's piece is a moralistic piece. The rake is not a good man, therefore he has to end badly. He gets, uh, yeah. he dies in bedlam, he goes crazy. Yes. So there was a, a series of Hogarth, but Hogarth's interesting because he took society on so directly. Yes. Even if in the end one wants to invert his morality. But then he, he grew up in a debtor's prison. Right. So, and he was rather angry at the, kind of, at the elite. And so he actually satirized, you know, most of those, you know, marriage a la mode and all those, yeah. um, you know, amazing, uh, you know, pr uh, prints. So there was a series, he did a series called Industry and Idleness, which yeah. was a piece which we can just show this, which I made some etchings of. And in his series, again, the idle apprentice ends up dead, uh, hanged as a criminal, and the, the industrious apprentice becomes Lord Mayor of London. <laughs> and this was made in South Africa in the 1980s where the, one understood that no matter how industrious you were, if you were born the wrong colour, in the wrong circumstances, you were never going to be Lord Mayor of London. Yes. And even if you were completely idle, but you came from the right family, you could still be wealthy at the end. So again, it was an inversion of his morality. In this, the, in, you know, the industrious person doesn't become the wealthy one and the yes. idle one does. But then I find, um, what I find really uncanny actually is the kind of parallel way in which we've actually worked. Because like looking closely at your practice and looking at my practice, you know, I'm working in London, um, you know, of African origin, but I'm based in London. You're working here in South Africa. And I've been surprised by the kind of different levels of similarity of subject matter. Even though we've come to this, you uh, know, uh, We've approached things in a different way, but we've kind of ended up. What do you think might be responsible for that? Do you think it's the kind of post-colonial uh, subject, you know, the, the sort of, uh, is there something in, in us that, that kind of creates that, that tendency? Well, I think we, we're both aware of working at the edges of a tradition, of looking at it partly from the outside. Um, of celebrating hybridity rather than trying to find uh, pure essentialism, I think yeah. is one of the things. So that you can take a bit of Leonardo and put it together with banking and put African print cloths on top of the Fragonard to say these clashes are in fact revelatory rather than obfuscatory. So I think the, that's a similarity in temperament, I think, also of of the, in the absurd comes into it, the dadas, but the, the crashing of things that one doesn't expect to be together. But then there is the history of modernism, yep. and the way that uh, Picasso was kind of free to use African masks and African imagery, and that was actually okay, and that made him kind of avant-garde and everything. But then, my own experience as a student, was that, you know, when I actually started making work about what was going on in Russia, I was certain, I was told that I was kind of crossing the lines there, you know, that I should be making authentic African art. <laughs> I mean, one of, the, yeah, one of the things I love about your work is its polemic saying that art that comes from Africa that is African art can look so much not what you expect African art to, to be. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the parameters need to be and are so much wider. And that's, I think, it's, for me, it's a huge gift to see. But I think for many, many young artists, the ex example of seeing your work, of artists in South Africa saying, okay, this is possible, this is, this is possible. We can escape the strictures. Because there's, there's both a political pressure, which reveals the world, but there's also a political pressure to make the work so contained and yes, exactly. so serious and so not allowing the, the process of making the work to find it. And I think, I mean, but in terms of similarities and different points, there's, uh, maybe we look at the, the, one of the sculptures of the people with a globe as a head, which is about a formal solution to questions of, how do you show a person but you don't want to make it an individual portrait? 
Um, Jean, it could be the it could be the butterfly boy, or it could be the person carrying the history. I'm not sure what that one's called. Oh, that's the one. So this is both a joke about all the knowledge in your yeah, holding it is, all in your um, You know, uh, girl balancing knowledge, and she's um, and there's a, there's a kind of precariousness to knowledge itself because you know knowledge is sort of received ideology. And, but then, as a young woman, how do you actually negotiate the sort of patriarchal received ideology? Uh, but then, the patriarchal, you know, kind of being on top of this sort of patriarchal received um, ideology is also your uh, empowerment. So your, your empowerment also lies in that. Um, but then the head is a deliberate universalizing of that person. So, you know, it's a globe head. It's not, a, uh, it's not culturally specific, necessarily. Um, it has the, you know, it, 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 this is a, a kind of a universal person. So, so in that sense, it's a utopian piece. And artists are kind of essentially ut utopian. And of course, we know that, you know, the utopian is not realistic because the world is not like that. But then as an artist, you have that license, you know, to do that. So I think that's where the kind of... I mean, I think we have a, there's a license, but there's also, there's a pleasure and there's a... You know, if, you're the, if, it, if the studio or making art is one place where a utopian world can be presented or that impulse can be housed, that's a crazy thing to not but then be it's part a, of. But you and I know that it's a form of delusion. It's certainly an illusion. It's an illusion, but it's an illusion all and, art making, and we know it's not a we know it's not a live standing woman <laughs> with actual clothes that she wore. It's all, yeah. but it's we're caught in both seeing the illusion and wishing it were so, and I yes. think that's the. So this was just saying that this idea of the globe as head also some places came through into the. Into work. in this case, saying can one put the globe all that thinking on its legs and walking? Uh -huh. So yours came out of thinking about patriarchy and the empowerment. Mine came and out diversity. Of, and diversity. Yeah. Mine came out of thinking about Cezanne, who said that you could describe the world using a cone, a cylinder, or a sphere, which is a kind of such a formal way of breaking the world down into this purely formal. So I said, what if we take the cone, the sphere, and the cylinder and send them back out into the world to earn their keep? So this yeah, was kind of sending the sphere back out into the world. And all the megaphones that I use are kind of sending the cone back out uh, okay. as if they had a meaning. Well, then the, the thing I hadn't mentioned in all that, even though I tried to explain it away, there's an element of the surreal in that. You know that thing of the, the, the sewing machine and the umbrella and the, you Operating know. Operating table. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, exactly. And so... There's constantly, I mean, we talked earlier about the, the poetic and the lyrical, and I asked you, why is it that African artists make uh, lyrical work, even when the work is dark? That, that perhaps, you know, I mean, it's a question I'm posing. Do you think that there is a cultural tendency for African artists not to want to make dry conceptual art, or is that...? Uh... I think, you see, for me, I think there is, and for me, one of the... If you think of the deeply, deeply conceptual art coming in the 1950s and 60s, I think that had to come with a Europe that was exhausted at the end of the Second World War, where everything seemed worked out and dead, and there wasn't anything to fight for. They'd had the Marshall Plan, Europe was kind of in its social democracy, whereas people in Africa, the, war, the battles were there. They were present. They weren't. So to, to do just a pile of bricks, to do a Carl Andre pile of bricks, if you were in South Africa, felt an indulgence in the way it might not have in Europe. So to take something that's almost like the pile of brick, which is um, Kendall Gear's bricks thrown through a window, so you have a brick the same form, but it's got the shattered window and a sense of violence in it, yeah, is yeah. the way it kind of would change. So for me, that was... When I looked at the very deeply conceptual workers, and I was a student, I thought, I can't connect to it because it seems so removed from... Not necessarily analy that analyzes all the questions of the world to infinity, those 
conceptual works, but so away from a, you know, an activity and making the body, the, the sense of what it is to be uh, dealing with fabric, with the material, and of the need to think in material. Yes, but you see, the, I mean, with regards to your work, the piece you have at uh, uh, the Zeitz at the yeah. moment, uh, what's, remind me the name of it? More Sweetly Play the Dance. Yes, exactly. So when I saw that piece, I wanted to dance. I was thinking about the idea of procession, and then it made me think about the death processions in New Orleans. And um, so that was, it, it's a, you know, the funeral is a dark moment, but then there's a kind of joyousness to that. And so how do you, I mean, the issues of death and procession in your work, do you want to say there's, there's an irony, in the, there's a tradition of the dance of death, which is the character of death dancing with everyone from the pope to the bishop to the king to the farmer to the peasant to the child, which is about the plague, that everybody could be killed no matter what your social status. But there's also the dance of death, which was the idea that if you gathered in your town squares and you danced and danced until the plague had passed your village, you wouldn't die. And so there's also a dance against death. And the, I suppose it's like some wakes, but the, the brass band that I was recording playing, and it came from hearing that brass band, the whole project started from that, is playing something that on one hand is a kind of funeral march, but in spite of that you can't keep a dance out of it. And Are they dancing towards a black hole? Maybe they're something? dancing towards a black hole. There is a, because I needed it to end, so they, they go towards a... Um, a black hole, although in that piece there's no absolute, uh, there's no absolute final end the way there have been in others. But it is a kind of a, a dance of death, even there are three obligatory uh, skeletons that do the dance. But this is, from, this is from Refusal of Time where there is a procession that kind of goes into a black hole as if it's going into death. And there I was struck by this by the metaphor of the black hole, which is both, you know, cosmic physics, astrophysics. But it's also, of course, our standard description of the black hole that we're all going to end in if we are buried rather than burned when we die. So it does have that. But the piece itself was about, we know we're going to die, but what is the arabesque? What are the, the dances that we do in spite of it? Not just waiting for it, but in spite of that knowledge. Okay, but then that relates to the notion of time and the, the idea of time. I mean, death itself and time and the right. inevitability of that. Because I know time is something that's quite, you know, that's something that's kind of prominent in your work as well. But, okay, we'll get to time, but let's maybe talk a bit about these, which are the very recent works, yes. which are all called fake deaths. Yeah, so that's a fake, fake death pictures. And, the, <laughs> and that's... Um, you know, and there are also <laughs> conversations with images of the past. Yes, but there's Nelson dying in different ways as well. So it's all Nelson. <laughs> They're all Nelson. They're all Nelson. But he's dying in different ways. The people have died in paintings. <laughs> so, okay, let's take any one of the, take this, take that image. Um, I'm interested in what happens in the studio also. So do you, ha you have a reference that we want to work with this? I'm not sure who's which painting. That's not Marat, that's... Yeah, the death of Chatterton. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a poet who died. Of Chatterton, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the paint I can't remember the painting. But, but do you say we're going to find this one and find the props and decide... Um, well... Do you have a team that helps you assemble? Well, you see, no, but often... The last work I made tends to create the next work I'm going to make. So I made Nelson's Ship in a Bottle. Yes. Uh, I was invited Can we to, find the ship in the bottle, Jana? And I was invited to do the sculpture in Trafalgar Square. And I wanted to do something connected to the context of Trafalgar Square. Then I started reading. I did a lot of research on, for that project. Then I did uh, HMS Victory in a Bottle. But then I was left with a lot of research material um, that I wasn't going to use. And then I thought, 
I now know more about Nelson than I care to know about. <laughs> But one does. I think one does. You know, all the things that one's found from. Oh, so there we go. So this is this is. There are there are four big plinths in Trafalgar Square. Three of them have statues on. The fourth one is empty at the moment, reputed waiting for the Queen to die, where she'll get on it. And in the meantime, there are a series of commissions which last a year or something. Yeah, yeah, ten months. Yeah, ten months of different sculptors invited to make pieces for this empty plinth, which was a great piece. So a huge bottle. Yes, it's now at the Maritime Museum, permanently in Greenwich. Okay. Yeah, outside, so you can see that. Yeah. But the, the idea of reusing or taking things that are left at the edge. Yes. I think that people often don't realize what scavengers we are as artists with this material. That it's, yes. and it's a mixture of that's there around the studio, but it is the activity of making one thing that prods the next one. Yes. And then I, I read about Nelson's death and how long it took, and the way that you know many painters have made. Uh, You know, paintings about. So, that, from your bit? from your reading, yeah. When he spoke to Hardy, did he say "kiss me, Hardy" or "kismet"? The word <laughs> for fate. Well, I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't remember <laughs> that. <laughs> but anyway, so all this material, all this material left over. Then I decided, okay, I should actually kill Nelson myself. <laughs> So, so I decided to kill him in many different ways, um, you know, um, art historically, so to speak. Then, as I was thinking of killing Nelson, and then I thought about his relationship to his wife and the affair that he had, and how devastating that was uh, for his wife. And so then, that occurred, then I made the film. Um, you know, I made Adio del Passato, um, and then from Traviata. So she's singing an aria from Traviata. Then I incorporate the tableaus into the film I made about Nelson's wife, which I made. I made her black. I mean, I don't know if you have a. Do we have a uh, clip? Oh, we do. The Adio del Passato. Does it come with sound? It comes with sound. I think so. Nelson's image dying is then overlapped at different points. Um, Does it not tempt you to do a whole opera? I've not been invited. Do you know somebody? <laughs> I do. I do. No, I do. I do. It would be. I think it could be. I mean, there's something fantastic about. The hour and a half or two hours you can work. Yes. The costume departments they have, the set people they have. It would be fantastic, I think. Mm-hmm. 
I'm also interested in, as it were, Africa singing back to Europe. So the sounds that have come from Europe in the form of the opera here and being sent back. So in the head and the load, we had our wonderful singer Anne Messina singing a song by Sati in the middle of the war back, almost as if she's a cabaret singer that's gone to Europe and made good. Maybe we show a short extract of that. I mean, I think there's, a, there's something of a polemic in both of our work here, which is saying, I think, in terms of the, the connection to so many of the projects that you're doing, certainly in mine, saying that this fantastic music, these things which have been written, should not only stay the preserve of, of people in Europe to play with, that they're absolutely. part of the raw material for all our artists in anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. Precisely the point, yeah. Maybe we should talk a bit about your, the guest projects you have in London, particularly as we're here in the Centre for the Less Good Idea, which, as Bronwyn explained, is trying to be a space which brings in both different kinds of artists, musicians, writers, actors, playwrights, um, and allows the space for discovering the energy of collaboration and a safe space for different projects to be tried out rather than having the pressure of a commercial run of a theatre to be the end point. But maybe describe, tell us a little bit about your, what you have in your studio also. Yes, I mean, I have, um, I've been running a project space in London for about 10 years. And, um, you know, we celebrated 10 years this year. Um, when I got my studio space, I wanted to make an experimental space. It was, uh, a time when you know the art market was sort of rising, um, property you know was kind of going up like crazy in London. Uh, my studio is in the uh, East End. It's just round the corner from a place called Broadway Market. Some of you might know that area. Uh, it's become gentrified. A lot of the artists living in the area are being kind of pushed out, and um, and I just wanted you know a space where artists can just you know fail try new things. Uh, so I give artists space for a month, um, and it can be all art forms, you know, it's from dance to music uh, to visual arts. I have a, a resident theater company, uh, they're called Tangle, it's an Afro-Caribbean uh, theater company. And so I give them a platform once a year, uh, residency there, to perform, rehearse, and lots of performance art. And I felt that it was something missing because art was, because I know the reason why I became an artist, but it was becoming a highly commodified in the sense, and artists themselves are actually being pushed out of spaces where they could actually, uh, you know, explore. And so that's the, the kind of uh, motivation for the project. And there will be a second part of the project. I'm actually building uh, an artist's residency space in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, it's, it will start small with just three rooms for artists to do cultural exchanges. You know, I'll have a studio there and a small gallery. And we're going to start building that this year. But really, it comes from that place of wanting to continue uh, a space for experimentation, which is where I started. So I want to know what you, you let uh, drop, but you didn't explain. What it was that made you an artist? Oh, sh that's a very, <laughs> yeah. that's a very, very difficult one. But I think that if I wasn't an artist, I possibly wouldn't be here. I don't know if I would have survived because, you know, I mean, you see that I, I use, you know, I use a wheelchair. Um, I got an illness when I was 19 that sort of left me completely paralyzed. 
my art kind of pulled me out of that. The, you know, I mean, that's why I never need to go to a shrink, because my, my art is my shrink. No, I mean, I, th I think it's clear people don't actually understand the kind of the physical comfort that working in a studio can give. When you're yes. feeling desperate after a couple of hours of work, you're in a different space. You can be in a different space. So that rings true, you know. Yes. So in a, in a way, for me, it's, it's, it's personal, it's political, it's, uh, it's, it's a place where I can be angry, where I can shout, I, I, can, I can transform my anger into gold, you know? I can actually... So for me, you know, in a short sentence, it's a means of survival. I think maybe that's a very good place to leave it. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to the Center for the Less Good Idea, Goodman Gallery and FNB Art Fair, and to Soulfire Studios for the sound recording. Unframed would love to host more artist talks, walkabouts, and panel discussions on its platform. So feel free to email unframedpodcast at gmail.com if you have an upcoming talk that you would like to be included. Follow Unframed Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and iTunes. See you next time. Bye.